This is the deepest hole we ever started in in our lifetime. The worst since 1929. And if you start in that deep of a hole, it takes a long time to get out. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Friday, October 8th, and that was Austin Goolsby, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. You heard at the top. On today's podcast, the state of American manufacturing. It is not what you think. Well, actually, it's exactly what you think. But it's also really different all at the same time. We're going to get into that because we're going to bring you inside two factories to see what works and what really, really doesn't when U.S. manufacturers try to compete in a global economy. But first, the Planet Money Indicator with His Excellency Sir J. Julius of Flatbush, Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 74,000. That's how many jobs local governments around the country cut between August and September. Uh, The number includes almost 50,000 jobs in education. So that means we're seeing a lot of school teachers' jobs get cut. Now, I saw this report, and though we are cutting school teachers and other government jobs, the private sector added 64,000 jobs between August and September, which that's not much considering it's the whole private sector we're talking about here. But still, it's growth, right? It is growth. And and this is the pattern that we've basically been seeing all year. You have the private sector adding jobs every month, a few jobs, and local governments have pretty consistently been cutting jobs. It's like what we're seeing is this mini recession for local governments that, that lags behind the broader economy. So if you look back a few years, you see that when private sector jobs were being cut through 2008 and 2009, jobs with local governments were actually holding steady, even, even climbing here and there. But then in the past year or so, so, you know, local governments have started to take a big hit to their tax revenues. And what we're seeing now is, is a response to that. They're cutting workers and trying to balance their budgets. So it's sort of a second wave employment recession in, in government. Right? Yeah, yeah, at least in local government. And, you know, in magnitude, it is, it is smaller, right? I mean, there were millions and millions uh, of jobs cut through the private sector. So, so we're not saying like this is a whole huge second wave, but it's definitely noticeable, particularly this month. An aftershock. It's an aftershock. It's well said. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. So, Alex, what comes to mind when I say these words? American manufacturing. Uh, Bad stuff. A lot of bad stuff. Uh, Unemployment lines, shattered factories, jobs fleeing to China. You know, I mean, I think everybody has heard American manufacturing is in decline. Well, actually, I have this handy cheat sheet here that provides a slightly different view. This is courtesy of the National Association of Manufacturers. And I got to say, before I read this, if someone had asked me who's the top manufacturer in the world, I would have said, oh, China. No, it's not. The U.S. is the world's number one manufacturer above China. In fact, the U.S. makes 21 percent of all manufactured goods worldwide. China is third behind Japan with 12 percent of manufactured goods. That is really staggering. Like, so first of all, you're saying the U.S. makes one-fifth of every manufactured good in the world, and and that they also make twice as much stuff as China's making. Yeah, not quite twice, but close. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why do we always hear that other story in the media and from politicians that manufacturing in the U.S. is dying or even dead? Yeah, so, so it turns out both stories are true. A lot of U.S. manufacturing is indeed dying. It's in horrible decline. And at the exact same time, 
U.S. manufacturing, parts of U.S. manufacturing are thriving. We're making more than anyone else in the world, and everyone else is desperately trying to catch up to us. So both stories are true. And to understand this paradox, we are going to go to two factories today. Each factory represents one of these competing stories, one in decline, one doing pretty good. And uh, we're going to try and shed some light on the actual state of American manufacturing. That sounds like a podcast. So where's our, where's our first stop? All right. First stop. All right. Well, that, that sounds like a manufacturer. Where are we? All right. This is Brooklyn, New York, Buttonwood Corporation. They make wood buttons, you know, like on your shirt or suit, if, if those were wood buttons. You might plastic buttons. <laughs> That's right. Like, like most people. You have to point that out for our, for our listeners. Listeners, he's lying. I have wood buttons. I would never <laughs> wear plastic buttons. Um, so that's a button machine that we're hearing there? Yeah, and they're, they're actually pretty cool. They just churn out buttons all day long. Or they would if there was a lot of demand for American-made wood buttons. But there isn't. So Buttonwood Corporation's owner, Dennis Hoffman, turned the machine on just for me so that I could record the sound. Oh, so this machine wasn't running when you got there. Yeah, no. His, his machines don't run a lot of the time. Um, although before we get to now, let's, let's do some history. Dennis Hoffman and his brother Steve own the business now. It was started by their dad and their uncles back in 1939. This was when New York City was the center of global clothing manufacturing. They had this big factory right in the heart of Manhattan. You know, it was a good business in, 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 in the, the 40s and the 50s. And uh, I came into the business in 1968. And it was a great business. Uh, we made buttons that were made from milk. Out of um, casein, really? Yes, and it was uh, back in the back in the um, in, in in the eighties and the nineties. It was a pretty thriving uh, uh, business, uh, casein buttons. And uh, for instance, uh, Ralph Lauren used uh, uh, casein buttons on on men's uh, handmade suits that were made out of uh, out of London years and years ago. And we made. We made the buttons. What was your life like in the 80s? It was nice, you know. Um, getting of this business, I went away every summer for four years. I went to Europe by myself for three weeks and traveled around Europe and got to see the countries and this and that. And, the other. and it was great. To picture Dennis, picture, I don't know, like a big friendly cop. He gets a smile when he talks about the 1980s. You know, he was single, making good money, spending it on fun. He was the button king of New York. They were getting these crazy orders, 10,000 buttons, 20,000 buttons. They would have to sometimes run two shifts a day, 16 hours, 150 machines, turning out dozens of buttons every second just to keep up with the demand. And I think I know how this story goes. As more and more clothing got made in China, Indonesia, Latin America, it makes sense. The buttons that fasten that clothing together, they also move abroad where they can be made cheaper. And Dennis and his factory become less and less busy. Right. They could not compete with the prices coming out of China. The big orders fell away. And every decade since the 60s, they've moved to a smaller place, then a smaller place. They've had to lay people off every time, get rid of some of their machines. Now they don't even have their own factory space. They're renting a corner way in the back of this business that makes scented candles for high-end stores. And this is where you visited them. Yeah, exactly, on the Brooklyn waterfront. There are cardboard boxes piled everywhere. It's really cramped and tiny 
they only have one employee left, Nelson Mendoza. And of the original 150 machines, they have like, I don't know, maybe there was a dozen left. And this machine is probably uh, 40 years old, yeah. as well as this one and this one and, and this one and this one. So these machines you bought in the heyday. Yes. So how often are the machines running now? Is it every day? or It's not every day, no. I wish it was every day. It's not every day because the people he sells to now, they buy very few buttons. He's had to find these little niches. and Mostly it's craftspeople who sew and really like wooden buttons for one reason or another. There's a lot of people that do uh, uh, Civil War reenactment, things like that. And apparently wood is a button that was um, you know, uh, used during the Civil War, but it's not, uh, you know, it's, not, it's not regular business. He showed me his current list of orders. He had two, one for 90 bucks, one for 57 Ouch. Yeah, and while I was there, the phone rang. Exciting. I happened to be there when he How's got it? an order. It was for 48 Indian beads. Yeah, that's a far cry from Ralph Lauren with 20,000 buttons. And this is a really familiar story, obviously. It's happening to a lot of manufacturers who make things like buttons, commodities. A button from one factory is pretty much like a button from another factory. So button manufacturers, to succeed, they have to compete basically on price. And Dennis explained to me that if you want to make buttons cheaper, if you want to cut down on the manufacturing costs, there's two main ways you can do it. You can do labor or you can do machinery. So... Back in the 80s and 90s, as China and other low-wage countries started to compete, they had much worse machinery, but they had really, really cheap labor. But Dennis would invest or try to invest in newer, cooler machines that made buttons faster with fewer errors. And while the machines cost a lot, over time, they would make buttons cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But now, in the last decade, it's something new. China not only has the cheap labor, they also have the best machines, like these amazing Benetti machines that come out of Italy and Dennis can't afford, but he's been craving. I mean, what do you picture when you picture a Chinese button factory? A hundred Benetti machines just sitting there constantly, you know, running 24 hours a day. The new models, the new models with laser eyes and, and you know, the button's on the wrong side or if the button has a blemish in it or something, it picks it out and knocks it off and so forth. And uh, you know, I, mean, I don't know. Can you make a living now in the way not it is? Really, no. It's, it's not easy, you know. Are you losing money? Are we losing money? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Somewhere between losing and breaking even? Yeah, somewhere around there. So why not just give it up? I don't know. It's hard to give it up. It's 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 it's, it's hard. I mean, uh, I'm not. You know, I'm I'm 63 years old. I'm I'm far from feeling even ready to retire. I mean, it would be nice. I mean, what else would you do? Me? Yeah. I have no idea. Become a waiter. I don't have too much. I don't know. Ambition. I mean, you know buttons. What would I like to do? You know, I'd like to be... I'd like to win that lottery that that girl won the other day. You know? And then I'd be happy. 
So your retirement plan is win the lottery. Right. Would be to win the lottery and right. I'd be happy. I'd be happy with <laughs> Right. So you can hear Nelson in the background saying, but you don't even play the numbers. His retirement plan is to win a lottery that he doesn't actually even play. Now, I want to say a few things about Dennis Hoffman quickly. First off, I just am really grateful. He was so open and honest with us. Like, weirdly, a lot of manufacturers just wouldn't even return our calls. They wouldn't meet with us. And he really opened his heart to us. It was it was, it was was very cool. And also, I want to say, Dennis says that despite everything we've described, he's happier than he's ever been in his life. And that's because a few years ago, he fell in love with a wonderful woman. He got married for the first time in his 60s. Now, they can't afford to go on vacation. They've never been on a vacation together. They couldn't afford a honeymoon. But he says they really are happy. So I think that's a beautiful lesson for today. American manufacturing, you know, business success is overrated. Love is what's important. No, Alex, that is not the lesson. We're Planet Money. We don't care about love. <laughs> now, I know that you're a big softy inside and you care a lot about love. But let's break down what the lesson is. What Buttonwood is facing, every American manufacturer is facing. China, other places in Asia, Latin America, they have cheaper labor. They have the same or even newer machines. So how do we compete? How do American manufacturers compete? All right. To, to answer that question, I think it'd be helpful to go to our next factory. Let's do it. All right, so where are we now? We're an hour north of Brooklyn in Mount Kisco, New York, at Zurich Manufacturing. So you told me this was going to sound really different, but actually, to my ears, it sounds sort of the same as the Button Factory. All right, I guess because I've been to both places, (laughs) they're very, very different. You know, Buttons in the corner, very small, two guys. Zurich is a huge plant. Seventy or so people work there. There's these massive machines just stamping out their little products one after another after another. And while we're on the subject, what are those products? What do they make here? Actually, I love learning about products like this because I would guess that in your entire life, you are never more than three feet from the kind of product Zurich makes. In fact, I would guess there are dozens of them in this room right now. But I would bet that you have never heard of the product they make, you have never thought about it, and there's a chance you have never seen it. Wow, this is a riddle. All right, uh... What do they make, air? <laughs> well, no, you've heard of air. I guess I have heard of air. Some sort of microscopic flying government spy robots? No, that's a different company that I visited. <laughs> no. All right. Here's what Zurich makes. Think about breaking open your TV or this monitor here or your phone and, you know, any electronic thing. And you know how there's that, like, little plastic panel that has all the electronic guts attached to it? Oh, yeah, the control panel, that, like, little, like, it's like a circuit board. It's usually green, I think. I I think I've seen those. So that's what they make? No, no, no. (laughs) Far more obscure. All right, so on that circuit board, there's those little electronic things, like a capacitor or resistor or whatever. Diodes or whatever. Diodes, I don't know what they are. And it's sitting on the plastic panel. And there's this tiny piece of metal that's, connecting that electronic thing to the panel. That's that's what they make? Yes. They make the little metal thing that connects electronics to panels. That is really obscure. So what is that thing called? It's called a connector. <laughs> Makes sense. So they're, they're like the buttons of the electronics world. Ah, you brought it all together. I did. And much like buttons, they're all around us all the time, and we don't really think about them very much. You see every car, 
every car has more and more electronic and, and there are Zurich connectors in it, for instance, you know. Wait, every car in America? Every, every U.S.-made car, yes. Has your inventions in it? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. That's cool. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a good feeling, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good feeling. That's Janusz Legadi. He's the head of R&D at Zurich. And, uh, and a vampire? No, no. He's a U.S. citizen. He's an immigrant from Hungary. Came here 40 years ago or so. <laughs> no, that was a cheap joke. But okay, but how is this company succeeding? I don't, I don't get it. It seems like aren't connectors just like buttons? Can't China make connectors? It doesn't seem that complicated. Yeah, and China does make lots and lots and lots of connectors, and they make them much more cheaply than Zurich does. But one of the secrets of Zurich's success is... That, okay, yes, they're in the business of making connectors. But much more than that, they're in the business of innovation, of creating new kinds of connectors, of inventing new products. In fact, Janusz says he has a quota. It's his job to come up with at least one new invention, one brand new idea in connector technology at least once a year. Sometimes you just wake up middle of the night and, wow. It is, you know, it's, it's, it comes to your mind. So wait a minute. How many new ideas and connectors can there be once you figured out how to connect one thing to another? Isn't the job done? Well, yeah. Like with buttons, sure. I mean, there's new technology in button making. But the button itself, I would guess, probably peaked in its innovation sometime in the 13th century. You know, a button then probably looks an awful lot like a button now. But that's one of the big differences between the businesses that can succeed in America and those that are in trouble. And I think a good rule of thumb is if your great-grandparents or actually even just your parents can understand the product you make, there's a good chance someone in China is making it a lot cheaper. So, okay, fine. But what is new then in the connector business? So many things, man. (laughs) I got to say, Alex, you don't know the first thing about connector technology. (laughs) Dude, neither did you a week ago. Yeah, well, it's now, baby. I'm an expert now because Janusz got me all excited. Actually, he really, really did. It was kind of cool because I learned that the connector business is really dynamic. It's constantly changing, and it's been changing continuously since he first got into the business. The most exciting invention, what really put Zurich and me on the map, was 20 years ago when... when uh, we had the Soviet Union and um, good, reliable enemy. And and the biggest, uh, most important thing was the supercomputers. And Jess, can you lower it? Because I'm going to step in here because his inventions are so technical and complicated. I, I, you can't actually. No non-expert can even understand what they do exactly. Uh, even like this. He's talking about his proudest moment, his greatest achievement, and he... I don't understand what it is. It's some there's these incredibly tiny wavy tubes made out of gold that create a special kind of strong connection between these two other gold plates and somehow this was essential to keeping supercomputers running. Wow, wow, so does anyone use these these connectors anymore? Well, that's the thing. Everything he invents becomes outdated really quickly, like everything in electronics. Like have you seen a supercomputer lately? I have one in my pocket. It's called an iPhone. 
Yeah, that's exactly the point, actually. Because, I mean, just think about that. Think about the connector needs of a giant mainframe versus the connector needs of the iPhone. And he's been through so many revolutions, like the automatic soldering revolution of the 1990s. And lately, there's been the solderless connection revolution. Wow, how did I miss all these revolutions? I think you let your subscription to Connector Magazine lap. <laughs> That's exactly. I knew I shouldn't have done that. Now, of course, these revolutions are important. When Janos creates a new revolution by creating a new product, he gets that product patented. And for a while, Zurich is the only company that has this brand new product. They can charge a nice premium for it. They make a nice profit. But they have to get all of that profit really quickly because as soon as a new idea is out there, there's this clock ticking because it's going to become outdated soon or some company out there will come along and steal the idea. It's just a question of time before they figure out a way to go around the patents, you know. So, Is that tough? Are you like, oh? No, it's not tough. It's, it's, it's just a question of time, you know. It's really not uh, We know it's going to happen, so it's happened, you know. And, of course, as soon as someone steals Xerox's idea, Xerox becomes just like the button business. They're just competing on speed and price, and China will win that war. So it's a lot of pressure on Janos to come up with new ideas all the time, right? Yeah, it really is. And he talked about that. But he also says he, he loves it. It's exciting to have to constantly stay on the edge of the connector technology. Although he did say the pace has picked up quite a bit. Back in the 80s and the 90s, he could ride out a good idea for three or four or five years. Now, if he doesn't have a good idea at least once a year, Zurich's going to have to let people go. They're going to have to lay off some of their workers. And if he ever had a two or three year spell of no new ideas, Zurich might go out of business. All right. But Here's this other thing I don't understand. If I go to Zurich, I'd see 70 people working at these big machines. And I'd think, oh, this business is making its money by making stuff, actual things. But you're telling me, no, actually, the thing that's making the money is this one guy and his ideas. Yeah. And he's way in the back in this small office. You probably wouldn't even notice him. And he's going to get mad at me if I don't mention there is a larger engineering team that supports and works with him. But this idea of the one guy in the back having ideas and then that fueling all the profits that allow a manufacturing uh, business to succeed, that really is the new model for U.S. manufacturing. U.S. manufacturers that succeed make things, sure, but they really make their money by coming up with new ideas. So, for example, Apple Computer, Nike, they keep inventing, innovating stuff in-house. But here's what I don't understand. Those companies keep the innovation here in America, but a lot of the manufacturing is done abroad. You know, they invent the stuff here and then they have it manufactured abroad. Why, why doesn't Zurich do that? Yeah, I actually talked to the owner of the company, Gretchen Zurich, about that. And she says that would not work for them at all. She's not even considering it. First off, a lot of their customers are here in the U.S. They're large companies that make really high-end stuff, airplanes, medical equipment, military hardware. And Janusz is on the phone with them all the time, asking them what connector problems they have, what new ideas would they want to see. So it's really good to have Janusz near them. But she also says that workers in America have more education and more skills than most workers in poorer countries. And they make better, more reliable products. Yeah, they cost more. But those big companies that make high-value stuff are willing to pay more for them. But Aren't we talking about connectors? I mean, how reliable do they need to be? How much skilled labor do you really need to make a connector? 
Have you ever screamed at your stupid phone that broke or your TV remote that doesn't work and there's something rattling inside? There's a decent chance that whatever electronic thing you have that breaks, it broke because they used a cheap, inferior connector. I know that uh, that uh, connection, interconnection is still the weakest link in, in electronic assembly. And working on that field, I have a real contribution. You know, I, I, I uh, uh, <laughs> not doing a routine work. It's a significant part, and I enjoy it. You know, I, I enjoy to come to work. I enjoy to talk to the customers, to the customers, engineers about their problems. So, I mean, I feel like you have made the world a tiny bit more efficient. I guess. I, yes, I. I uh, we can say that. So, Adam, I, I, I have to say I feel both good and bad about what we learned here, which I guess isn't surprising since we started out saying it's a paradox. I have paradoxical feelings. I feel bad for Dennis, sure, but I feel good to learn that there really is a way for the U.S. to stay competitive in manufacturing, although it seems like the way to do that is to constantly come up with new ideas, constantly be thinking of new ways to do business, constantly staying one step ahead of Chinese and other cheaper, faster global competitors, it's sort of exhausting to think about. Exactly. And all the evidence suggests that this is only going to speed up, you know, technology, computers make the invention process faster. There's more people all over the world because of globalization trying to solve the same types of problems. So you have more competition. It's easy to imagine that 10 years from now, Janos or whoever succeeds him will have to come up with a new idea like every six months or I don't know, every three weeks. I mean, a new idea every three weeks. Oh, my God. It certainly doesn't work for us here on Planet Money. <laughs> it does not. All right. Well, I think that does it for us now. On future podcasts, we are going to look into what the government can do about helping U.S. manufacturing. Hint, maybe not much. We will talk about why tariffs and quotas and things that are designed to help manufacturing usually cause more trouble than they're worth. Although, Alex, just quickly, I also want to say that this has made me really want to look into education and immigration. It made me understand how crucial that is to this story because clearly for America to succeed, we want a lot more Yanushes. And that means everything from better preschool through graduate school education. It means fixing all the problems there. Or maybe it means just importing more and more smart engineers. So the official Planet Money position, massively subsidizing education, cutting all tariffs, and opening the borders. I think that's a little too much controversy (laughs) for right here at the end. We don't have a position. We're going to explore it. We're going to learn more. But later. Right now, you can... Check out links to Zurich and the buttons and see what we're talking about all at npr.org slash money. Send us an email at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Tell me that you'll stay in love.